welcome to this, the final bonus episode, the final episode of this, our series, our hell of presidents. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm Matt. Uh, and this is this is just kind of a wrap-up episode. Pretty free-form structure for this one. We've got a little bit of presidential ephemera here that I wanted to cover. Maybe some trivia that we didn't get to in the r- other episodes. Uh, and then we're going to talk about ranking presidents. How you... Um, sort these guys from best to worst and what that really even means. Because that is our favorite thing to do with presidents is just stack yeah. them up and, and have them fight like Pokemon. <laughs> well, I think that that's one of the things that even attracted us to this idea uh, of this kind of project uh, right now is that there is such a discrete number of these guys that you can wrap your head around. Yeah. You know, it, it is just enough people that you can kind of quantify them and look at them as a total and span the entire history of our country with this one discrete chunk that's like not too unmanageable. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just too big of a project. Yeah. Like I saw some people joking as they've been listening to the series that we should do a hell of popes after this. But no, there's like a thousand popes. There's too many. There's of them, too right? many popes. But with this, you know, you got 46. That's you could set them into to quadrants, uh, quartiles, top five and bottom five, which is what I have. But Matt, you want to start off? Uh, this episode with a little presidential trivia. Yes, always fun. I love it. It's what got me into presidents. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is that there's uh, with the, there being a discrete but manageable number. There's also a kind of discrete but manageable amount of trivia. So what I have here is some genealogical trivia from these that I'm going to read off to you. I thought all these were very fascinating. I'm guessing that even though I thought that these were fairly obscure ones that you probably already know a few of these just because you're such a uh, presidential savant. But I do need to shout out a fan researcher who helped me out with these. Big shout out to Paul Vartan Sukesian, who uh, got in touch with me and said that he was a presidential genealogist hobbyist and gave me an amazing dossier of genealogical information. Uh, I asked if I could just publish it all as like if people are interested, they can check it out uh, because I can't get to all of this. Uh, he covered every single president, but I think he's going to do something with this information eventually. So until then, I'm just giving some highlights of this. All right, Matt, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah, the big guy, number one. Number one with a bullet. So Abraham Lincoln's mother's name is Nancy Hanks. Uh Uh-huh. And she has several famous relatives, including a pretty famous guy named Tom. Of course. So Tom Hanks is related to Abraham Lincoln through his mother, Nancy Hanks. But Nancy's relationship with the Hanks family was uncertain for a long time due to the covering up the fact that she was likely illegitimate. Oh, snap. But recent DNA testing has confirmed that Nancy was the daughter of one Lucy Hanks and an unknown father. So Lucy Hanks, Abraham Lincoln's grandmother, was the granddaughter of John Hanks, and that is the common ancestor with Tom. Aha. But Lucy Hanks later married a man named Henry Sparrow and had a daughter named Mary Ann Sparrow, who was Lincoln's then half-aunt. Mary Ann's great-great-great-granddaughter is Nina Bruce Warren, who was married to prominent Cincinnati-area broadcaster Nicholas Clooney. Ha! And they have a son named George Clooney. My God. So that makes Tom Hanks Abraham Lincoln's third cousin four times removed and George Clooney his first cousin wow. five times removed. That, it's interesting to see where the talent went. It, it kind of drained out of like the political stuff <laughs> and it accumulated into like charisma and likability. Because that's the only thing that uh, can be rewarded once politics is sort of goes away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I know we didn't really get into this. Abraham Lincoln did have a son, uh, Todd. Robert who, Todd, uh, yeah. Robert Todd, who, who survived and went into politics. Is there any part of that lineage that you're familiar of, or is there anything even worth talking about about his son? Uh, my favorite fact about Robert Todd Lincoln is that he, uh, after the Civil War, was uh, at one point on the back of a train as it was leaving a station. And he lost his balance and fell towards the tracks. And another passenger on the train went over and snatched him up before he could fall and saved his life. And that man was Edwin Booth. (laughs) John Wilkes Booth's more talented older brother. (laughs) That's fascinating. And did they make that connection at the time? Uh, Yeah, I'm sure they're like, oh, my God, this is this is pretty funny. Uh, and then Edwin was like, uh, yeah, geez, sorry about your dad. My, uh, yeah, my he's brother. Like, Jeez. We're all, and they did, by the way, the, the Booth family condemned John Wilkes, uh, uh, unequivocally after it happened. They were like, we mm-hmm. do not know this dude. <laughs> 
So I want to back up now from Abraham Lincoln just a little before him to James Buchanan. Oh, boy. I want to talk about a little um, gay history. You want to talk about, yeah, you want to talk about some first they're sour, then they're sweet in American presidential history to go from fucking Buchanan to Lincoln. Lincoln sandwiched by Buchanan and Johnson. My God. But I do want to reference, even though, uh, you know, Buchanan is largely known uh, as one of the biggest failures in American history. Big old chump. Big time. We didn't ever talk about uh, his personal life, which is very interesting, Mm -hmm. uh, because James Buchanan uh, was notably in a long and presumed romantic relationship with Rufus King. William Rufus Devane King. Thank you very much. Uh, And and though nothing can ever be, like, confirmed about the true nature of their relationship because a lot of their correspondence was destroyed, Mm -hmm. uh, they were notably referred to by uh, the very tactful Andrew Jackson as uh, Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy. Yes. uh, As they were long-term DC roommates and attended official events together uh, in uh, some sort of partner capacity. And in a way, that could be seen to make James Buchanan the first second gentleman of the United States, rather than, of course, Doug Emhoff, our current first second gentleman, um, because Rufus King was actually Franklin Pierce's vice president. Yes, our shortest serving vice president. Yes, who was sick at the time of the election and was actually in Cuba during the inauguration, recovering from tuberculosis there, and is the only vice president, Rufus King, to be sworn in outside of the country in Cuba, though he would later return to the States and die pretty much immediately. Yeah, yeah, they were, uh, they were definitely a antebellum Washington power couple. In the Democratic Party. Yes, that's exactly what I found. And it is interesting, you know, uh, how it puts the gay community in relationship to trying to talk about American history and find, you know, antecedents and heroes. That, like the one president we're pretty sure was gay is and on everyone's bottom five list and on most people's <laughs> uh, worst, although that is, I will argue, incorrect, but. Just an absolute dog shit president. Everyone hated. Uh, yes, that is an uncomfortable position. Position for uh, you know uh, the the point of, of putting out first as as markers of pride. Also, uh, I think it's interesting that James Buchanan was also, by basically any uh, definition, the most qualified person to ever become mm-hmm. president. Before that, in terms of governance, he had been a member of the legislature. I believe he'd been a senator. He had been the secretary right. of state, an ambassador to several uh, prominent countries. Yes, he he was as like deeply well versed in the workings of Washington as anyone in America. Uh, and it all fell up, felt dissolved like a sandcastle on top while he was on top of it. And like others, like people like Van Buren, unable to reckon with the changing conditions. All he could do was what Democrats like him had always done. Give the Southerners what they want. Yes. And eventually that became no longer acceptable. uh, And eventually it became literally treasonous, (laughs) but it's nothing that any of the other doe faces wouldn't have done because it was the only play they had in the book. Uh, That is why I kind of think that Buchanan gets kind of a bad rap uh, when people remember vice president, bad presidents because Franklin Pierce, Frankie Pierce, handsome Frank, our, our most alcoholic president, uh, who preceded him would have done likely the same thing mm-hmm. as Buchanan if he had been in office when the sexual crisis emerges, when Lincoln gets elected, uh, because that's all any of these chumps could do. Uh, and it was really just Buchanan's bad luck to be uh, the one who pulled the straw for that particular moment. Yeah, and I, I do think that it's interesting, and we'll get into this w- during rankings, uh, is that as you were just talking about the, uh, the shit sandwich with Lincoln in the middle of Buchanan and Johnson, it does kind of serve we're talking about like you know the ideological nature of looking at history or formulating the story of history it, it, it kind of serves a specific purpose to put the blame on Buchanan for being the bigger fuck up than looking at Johnson and not re- his inability to redeem the civil war afterwards and set up the it's ongoing uh, crisis that would happen uh, throughout reconstruction you know i i think the distinction comes from the fact that whether or not Johnson did uh, the wrong thing uh, for reconstruction is sort of a open question because a lot of people still have sympathy for the Confederate cause, mm-hmm. uh, wish things had ended differently. It put it, put it mildly. Uh, and so from their perspective, Johnson can't be fully condemned. The, the people to blame for reconstruction going badly are the radical Republicans right. who insisted on carrying out a reckless maximalist and, uh, vindictive uh, and corrupt reconstruction that Johnson tried to stop with Buchanan. There is a period, uh, I mean, once the uh, national healing like really happened in the 1890s, 
the under the memory of the Civil War changed to not being a war of rebellion or a war of aggression, but of a, a tragedy, mm-hmm. something that had emerged through a tragic misunderstanding that was mostly the part of political extremists on both sides. And under those conditions, allowing the war to happen mm-hmm. in the first place, even if you sided with the South, uh, is something that you uh, look back at as political malpractice. Right. So everyone can agree that Buchanan fucked up. Uh, so Buchanan, uh, not much of a, um, a positive mark in LGBT history uh, presidentially. But I do want to shout out as somebody that uh, Paul brought to my attention that I did find very interesting, whose story is so complicated I can't really give it justice here. But I do want to shout out Chester A. Arthur's grandson, Chester A. Arthur III, who took the name Gavin, uh, who I would highly recommend uh, people uh, look into uh, because he is a... Uh, prominent uh, figure in the early 20th century that kind of serves as a link between the 19th century early LGBT history of people like utopian socialist Edward Carpenter and Walt Whitman and to later beat and lost generation figures like Allen Ginsberg and Neil Cassidy. He is somebody who was familiar with both these generations of people. And even as a uh, astrologer and perhaps an early kind of type of guy who would presage hippies in American culture, uh, coined the term uh, and picked the precise date for a human being, which would then turn into like all the blank ins of the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, linking the past of Chester A. Arthur with uh, Timothy Leary and, you know, the Grateful Dead and, and figures like that. Um, so, uh, again, there's so much to talk about here. Uh, I would just highly recommend, uh, you know, looking up uh, Gavin Arthur, Chester A. Arthur's grandson, a very interesting figure of um, early gay rights activism and, and a link between those uh, those generations of people. I mean, that makes sense because Chester A. Arthur was definitely our grooviest president. <laughs> no, uh, I mean, in terms of facial hair, mm-hmm. he's the one guy who's really going for it. Yes. Every other facial hair configuration among American presidents is Pretty conservative. You've got either the full curtain beard, the neatly trimmed beard, then maybe you've got the outlier of Abraham Lincoln with the with the chin beard. But all of it is like in the wheelhouse. Then you got Chester A. Arthur out there in the transition point between beards and mustaches, pulling out the chops connected to the stash. Uh, yeah. So I would, <laughs> I would then suggest uh, Gavin Arthur as the the syncretic figure linking the facial hair of the handsome generals to the facial hair of say a uh, Jerry Garcia type. It's true. It's all, it's all a, it's all a uh, follicular journey <laughs> through time. Uh, so then some more, more concrete stuff. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. So the Roosevelt's are obviously deeply ensconced in American history and have relations all over the place. Uh, but check this one out. Teddy Roosevelt's maternal grandmother is one Martha Stewart Bullock. And her mother is someone named Susanna Oswald. Susanna had a brother named Thomas, and Thomas had a son named Thomas, and that Thomas Thomas had a son named Robert E. Lee Oswald. Robert E. Lee Oswald's son was named Lee Harvey Oswald. <laughs> I was thinking, oh shit, is there where we going there? There we go. So Teddy, who remember notably survived a post-presidential assassination attempt himself, is third cousin's once removed with Lee Harvey Oswald. Wow. And just for reference of how close that is, he's third cousins once removed with Lee Harvey Oswald. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is fifth cousins with Teddy. <laughs> Why he's closely related to Lee Harvey Oswald. That's amazing. Uh, so I found that one pretty interesting. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and now to bring us up to the modern day, this is uh, th- this one I find more uh, aesthetically interesting than anything, but... Uh, Eisenhower and Nixon. I mean, you can probably describe the, this off the top of your head. Uh, yeah, would, I'm not. What, what? Well, just that. Um, Richard Nixon's daughter, Julie. Oh yes, yes, of course, yes, yeah. That man, that is the all-time uh, uh, ass kiss move. I think. Yes. Or no, it, it's like it's sort of like yeah. Uh, it's like if we brought back medieval like dynastic marriage. Well, I kind of want to get into this and see if you can think of a better example so, uh, uh, for where I'm going with this, but. Richard Nixon's daughter, Julie, married Dwight D. Eisenhower's grandson, David, who Camp David is named for. Yep. Uh, And they got married in 1968, right as Nixon was winning his first election for presidency. So in my mind, that makes Dwight and his veep among the most closely related through marriage of any of our presidents. Definitely. And then the thing that entertains me is that David and Julie now have two grandchildren, and their grandchildren's names are Kaya and Caden. Uh, (laughs) 
Which you do. Damn, that was fast. Yeah. Which you know, I mean, no shit. I'm sure they're the Kai and Caden uh, Eisenhower are lovely children. They're they're fairly young. They're like it's eleven and eight. No smoke uh, on them. It's just funny to me that even uh, old Eisenhower and Nixon can't escape having great great grandchildren with you know Gen Z Instagram names. Nope. It comes for us all. It, think about it. It was probably like in those lines going back to Germany and and East Anglia. It was probably Richards and like some version of Dwight going back like 500 yes. years to when they started giving people last names. And then within what? Three generations, you've got Kylie's yes. uh, and no Richards. But I also have to say that if we were to embrace some kind of weird nouveau uh, patrilineal feudal uh, system here in America, uh, Caden Eisenhower, age eight, might have one of the strongest claims to the throne just in terms That's of a there very good not, not being claim. many living male heirs to former presidents who haven't already become presidents and are not named Jeb. Yeah, no, that and you can't go with Jeb, obviously. No, Jeb he's already tried himself. Him. He is, uh, if, if he was a uh, son of the nobility in a Patrick Wyman podcast, uh, Patrick would refer to him as the feckless Jeb Bush. He's without feck. So yeah, that's that's kind of um, you know my three or four hits of presidential genealogy that I got there. I mean, the thing is, when you look through presidential genealogy, especially in the uh, 19th century, you really come to terms of, and we've mentioned this on the show, there simply weren't that many guys yeah. in America in the 19th century, and especially when you're talking about these systems that are intentionally called out of very small members of elite classes. Basically, everybody's each other's fifth cousins. And even those people who rise up through uh, the meritocratic structures from like Lincoln common or common classes yeah. like Abraham Lincoln uh, are then carrying on their uh, advantages forward. That's that's why meritocracy will always transform into aristocracy basically immediately mm -hmm. because no, nobody, nobody, no matter how meritocratic and how dedicated to the meritocracy who gains power is going to allow their children to not access it. It doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. Right. Um, yeah. And like even going back to the very beginning, uh, you know, as we pointed out in the second episode, it took six presidents to get some guys, somebody's son in there, yeah. you know, uh, which it seems like it would indicate a downward trend in the system pretty early on. But I, I don't know if people felt that way at the time. I know. I, I think they did. I think that there was a general like, can it get a load of this guy? <laughs> get a load of this guy over here. But, you know, uh, and, and it's also Important to point out that he did not win the popular vote in that election. Mm -hmm. uh, right. He was pretty handily defeated by Andrew ja Jackson, and it was only that that electoral college there to protect uh, the the aristocratic uh, landowning class from the mob that prevented Jackson from being president. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, but he got his revenge. He did indeed. Uh, all right. So, do we want to transition into? I think one of the yeah, as we said at the top, one of everybody's favorite things: ranking presidents mm, let's do it so you and i had a pretty good conversation about this a few months ago uh when i was in la when we were recording the um progressive era presidents uh episodes you know we started talking about how you go about rating things and i think that's how i want to open up this conversation is like what are we asking when we say to rate the presidents yes. what metric are we actually judging there and you know i think that you know when you when every time a new president is elected and a new one of these lists came out, as one did recently when Biden became president. It's kind of hard to parse because at a certain point you're like, it really seems to judge an intersection of who's the most famous and who seems to be the nicest. Yeah, right. And a lot of it comes down to things that happened during their term that they were kind of just coincidentally involved with that that were made by the Times. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true of the bad ones too, you know, because what we're trying to get across is how little these people actually have discretion once they reach that level of power, especially as the complexity of the machinery they rule over becomes greater and greater. Uh, yes, absolutely. So what do you think then when you try, when you were trying to put together your list of presidents or your rankings, what were you going for? So I decided that since that, uh, the, I think thinking about the presidents and ranking them, uh, through a moral lens is, is, uh, basically beside the point. Because we're we're trying to describe you know historical processes here, uh, trying to judge it good or bad kind of gets in the way of that, and, and we get colored by like these uh, relationships to like our moral understanding of these people. When the reality is they are instruments, right? Uh, so if I'm not going to think of it morally, then I have to think of it aesthetically. <laughs> so I basically 
uh, took the presidents, uh, divided them into the ones that I think are interesting dudes Mm -hmm. and ones that I think are uh, boring. Okay. And then taking the interesting guys and trying to, through what I know of their lives and times in president as president and the conditions they governed and lived during, kind of what their interior world was, their relationship to their pursuit of power. Okay. Uh, both personal and, uh, and like systemic. Uh, and then it, from that, the ones who I feel like a general sympathy towards their character uh, and the ones who I find intriguing through their demonic nature. So <laughs> charismatic one way or the other, like either interesting, uh, like tragic, like f- tragically formed, uh, in some few cases, actually like admirable and aspirational or just fascinatingly evil. So you kind of have like a charisma par- uh, parabola, you know, where right. the best and worst are going to be kind of high on, you know, their amount of actual personality where the ones in your middle uh, are just kind of the dullards. Exactly. Yeah. So I have eight categories here <laughs> uh, and they're divided broadly by, into not ranking, but into the ones who guys who I kind of think are cool one way or the other <laughs> and guys who I think are uh, monstrous okay. in a way in like a Judge Holden type way. Yes. Or represent something monstrous. And then everybody else is like, who cares? Yeah. Like they might have interesting uh, uh, trivia about them, but from a, like a real grand historical perspective, essentially uh, nothing. Like uh, Calvin Coolidge owned Raccoon and, if, and was going to eat it. Yes. Did you know that? Yeah, we, I think we talked briefly how he had like one of the weirdest selections of presidential pets. He had an insane menagerie of pets. Uh, and he's also just this boring embodiment of uh, 20s uh, business uh, mm-hmm. liberalism. Right. For, like, but these guys are guys who either because they're so fascinatingly evil, represent something so fascinatingly evil, in my understanding of like who I think of them as people, mm-hmm. or what, guys who I feel like, there's some glimmer of like a real human soul there, you know, right. some like an actual attempt to, you know, uh, be not just an individual, uh, you know, uh, possessor of power, but a member of a fucking species, basically. Mm-hmm. Sure. So th- th- those are my groups. Uh, so amongst the guys who are like the ones who I feel like are are real people that I can relate to and think broadly cool one way or the other again. Not really anything to do with what they did in office. And yes, all of them are monsters in the sense that they presided over a system of monstrosity because it's a fucking bourgeois capitalist dictatorship at the very moment that it was uh, destroying like the natural <laughs> biosphere, for Christ's sake. Like, this is all bad stuff. Right, right. But the people who did it did it with different things in mind, you know? Yeah, I think we're just uh, trying to se- se- separate out interesting from meaning we support them and laud every exactly. action that they have ever taken. So we got number, we got two number two, one and two for me because like, this is the category above categories, the tri- the tribunes of humanity. <laughs> These are the people who like, because mostly of the moment that they arose onto the stage, were able to embody and interact with like significant currents of, of human uh, progressive development. And those are Abraham right. Lincoln and Franklin Roosevelt. Yes, I think that in any survey, if you're no matter how you're defining the word best, you got to put those two guys at the top. Yeah, they just it's everything that like America could be and the stuff that we we live with as like the alternative is all was all uh, enthroned in power to some degree or another during those presidencies. So those guys are uh, number one and number two. But yeah, I was just like thinking about FDR and Lincoln, Lincoln, FDR, who you put one, who you put two. Uh, if you have to make an absolute ranking. And I think it's interesting because they represent different management styles and different responses to historical events. And I think that FDR maybe gets uh, more points in, in terms of being a president by being um, kind of having a plan and ruthlessly executing it, whereas Lincoln gets more points for being perfectly reactive to situations. Right. Because uh, like Roosevelt had a number of moments where he really misjudged the moment. Part of it's because he mm-hmm. had so many more moments to misjudge, uh, like the decision to go with austerity after 1936 because of the prevailing mm-hmm. economic orthodoxies, which had all been discredited. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, again, there had to be some sort of pullback because it's still a capitalist enterprise. But uh, whereas and, and Lincoln made a bunch of uh, mistakes, too, but early on and, and they mm-hmm. 
like things smooth out over time because of his ability to adapt. It took way longer for uh, Franklin to really, to Roosevelt to really get the message. In fact, it was World War II that redeemed the New Deal because it had never been enough. You know, mm-hmm. like it built our national infrastructure, but it still wasn't enough. It it took the war to do that uh, because the the project was not uh, aggressive enough. So those are like the guys who I feel like were able to actually be able to make positive uh, effects t- that way, not being thwarted by you know overbearing reality. The material was was malleable. Uh, everybody else is more fixed in their moment. And so like the aspirational part is pretty much gone. And now we got guys who one way or the other are just fascinating figures. And in my mind, somewhat sympathetic, Mm -hmm. tragic heroes. Uh, and those are in order chronologically, uh, John F. Kennedy, Linda Johnson and Richard Nixon. Uh, and I don't think that uh, they're essentially there at the moment when, uh, uh, the theoretical power of the American state and the American president is at its zenith, but is also uh, the limits of it are being defined, right? Because the state after yes. World War II is this uh, supernova, uh, an event, and that means that capital is is exploding, but also the 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 governing uh, structures are exploding and expanding and and growing more and more complicated. The president for the first time can press a button and kill everyone on earth, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but what can they actually do? And these three presidents back to back to back hit the boundaries <laughs> or the boundaries hit them. Well, they pushed until they got a response basically. <laughs> and that is why they're all such mm-hmm. fascinating figures. Uh, Johnson is, or Kennedy is the least interesting psychologically for me, you know, uh, classic uh, uh, second son of a, uh, rich tyrant, just succession shit, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon are just these titanic figures, these people who drew themselves from the mire of the, of the, uh, the struggling lower middle class of America, which is, of course, the political mm-hmm. class of the United States, uh, and, and which had been dominated right. by aristocratic power until finally being unleashed by you know, the full democratization of the American electorate. The final time, like the the slow push through institutions to finally have these two guys through sheer will bring themselves to these points uh, and both of them finding the limits of what they can do uh, in this in the structures that they have taken control of. Uh, and there was they're just such richly marbled psychological figures. There's the 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 the, <laughs> the, the stories of like uh, Lyndon Johnson as a teenager being forced to. Uh, do road construction work with his father who had been uh, a wealthy landowner and state legislator before losing all of his family's money in land speculation mm-hmm. and being forced to essentially live on uh, public welfare. And Nixon was dead brothers and going to be a carnival barker in Arizona and his sainted Quaker mother. Oh my God. Going, going mm-hmm. on, uh, Asking Pat Nixon before she was Pat Nixon to go on dates, having her turn him down, and then so that right. he could hang out with her more, agreeing to chaperone her on dates with other guys and just sticking with it until she eventually yes. got worn down and agreed to marry him. And then calling her buddy for the rest of their life together. Oh, my God. <laughs> so these guys, I can't not uh, think about them, so I got to put them on the list. Uh, yeah, I I. I always think that Nixon is interesting because he, you know, especially in the um, in boomer mindset, goes down as possibly the great villain of the latter half of the 20th century. And I think that that status for him, I don't want to necessarily exonerate Nixon, but I think it really under, right. undersells what's going on there. You know, it's it's easy to just say like, oh, he was, you know, black and white. He was a monster. But I, I think it it devalues the historical well, Nixon importance believed. of his role in that. He had a, he had a messianic belief in his own ability to uh, to sustain America's global power in the face of the crack-up of the post-war economic order. He thought he could do that. Him and Richard Henry mm-hmm. Kissinger in a room right. could renegotiate world power to allow the U.S. to step down into a multilateral uh, global market and avoid the accelerating contradictions of trying to maintain its paramount position as the economy globalized. That's what he tried to do. 
And that is an insane thing to try to do. <laughs> but his life had been this insane, this incredibly uncharismatic guy had somehow pulled himself through uh, life as a, a child of a struggling shop owner uh, and then fighting through through second class, second rate universities because he didn't have the the blood to make it and the Ivies. He didn't have the the connections and then groveling his way through uh, the political ranks, kissing the asses of old men like Eisenhower and uh, little Fauntleroy's like Nelson Rockefeller, and then getting to that point, why wouldn't he believe in himself? Right. And then so, all right, so we're getting towards the middle now. So those are the two categories of guys that I have the most fond feelings for one way or the other. And now the guys who I like uh, mm-hmm. in some way, uh, and then the guys who... I dislike more than I like. And then finally the bottom just turd flush. So these are the guys who I still like more than I dislike. And now we're going to flip to the ones <laughs> I don't really like, but again, fascinating. You've got the men on horseback. You've got the dudes who won on the field. Mm-hmm. The guys who took all of this political bullshit and all these theoretical ideas about what the fucking country is and what we believe in and what makes Americans and fucking uh, showed it on the field, made it real in the land by shooting people until it was so. <laughs> and these are George Washington, Ulysses Grant, and Dwight Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. And those acts, their 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 uh, actions in those roles are truly fascinating and show incredible abilities. Uh, and but the other side of that is these guys, like a lot of very serious military men, or in the case of Grant military savants basically couldn't yeah. do anything else uh, is that they don't really have a lot of other interests uh, and they don't have terribly developed thoughts on things outside of uh, that. I mean, Washington is the only founding father who did not leave a giant, uh, uh, a huge stack of public writings about theories of politics. Yes. I, I mean, Washington is interesting to me in that way because he is like the more you read about him, the more he seems like just a big piece of wood. Yeah. But, and, but he, he does have to, as we've talked about, take this mythological status and he's always, always, always in most lists, like top five presidents. And I do get high ranking of him because if it was not for him being exactly that guy, that stern piece of wood who everybody could trust yep. exactly without, without a lot, not a lot of opinions out there yeah. for people to look through. Yeah, exactly. Who, yeah, wh- who could be that boring and that taken seriously? Uh, who knows if we could have gotten this whole project stood up? If the bicycle would have ever. We're all very right. explicit on it that that yeah. the, creating an executive position that was effectively a secular king was way mm-hmm. too much for most of these state uh, ruling classes. It was too close to what they defeated. Uh, they needed someone who they could be sure was not going to uh, seize dictatorial power. Because the president was going to get to define the office, which Washington did. Uh, and the, the fact that there was Washington to have the job allowed yeah. them to say yes. And they figured that whatever role he created could be filled by regular mortals. And it was. Uh, so, yes, incredibly important. It's like it's the way you can't say the Beatles are overrated. It's like, what are you yeah, talking exactly. about? Like they set the entire structure that you're all the stuff you like is within you guys. What does yes. that even mean? So for that reason, he's, he's also in, um, I do have to give it, I do have to hand it to him. I do have to put him in my, in my top yeah. five, uh, but he is fascinating in his uninterestingness. Uh, although the fact that he was the, the one interesting thing about Washington is how incredibly repressed it is. And that makes him not a terribly interesting public figure by definition. But mm-hmm. uh, if you read about uh, like the people who were close to him, their descriptions of him, he was infuriously pissed off all the time. And yes. There were very few moments when he would lose his stack and he would like st- start screaming at people, but he was mostly just this tea kettle, uh, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> and then we've got a guy who I have a deep uh, uh, appreciation for uh, Ulysses Grant, a loser, a guy who basically mm-hmm. went to West Point because he didn't want to be a tanner, which totally understand tanning sounds like it would suck. Uh, then was a mediocre uh, student then did wonderful work in the Mexican war, but then was asked to sit on his ass alone in a tent in new in California and got bored and uh, just drank himself shit faced. I mean, who, who hasn't <laughs> whom amongst us and then tried to uh, live a regular life and just couldn't hack any of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And then went back to war and found his natural affinity. 
Uh, and he did, as many people point out, uh, prove himself to be the only president who effectively prosecuted Reconstruction in terms of uh, pursuing and neutralizing the guerrilla uh, elements like the Ku Klux, mm-hmm. Ku Klux Klan. Once again, his military role, his military abilities showing themselves. It was in every other consideration of being president that he really lacked, uh, like a lot of these generals, uh, an actual coherent idea and a will to pursue it. And they just let the party, in this case, the uh, robber baron Republican Party, dictate terms. And that uh, was bad. And in a similar situation, you see Eisenhower, a character who is gray and and kind of dishwater, but has a few fascinating uh, things about him. The fact that he knew that everybody thought he was a dumb old out-of-touch man and he would play it up. (laughs) There's uh, memos uh, when people talking about a sensitive question where he'll say, oh, I'll just... uh, I'll just tell them I, I I wasn't aware of it. And they'll believe me. You know, like he he knew. <laughs> I mean, that's a that's a good gambit. Yeah. It'll get people off your back. Uh, but his role, like defining the post-war order, uh, from a position of what he thought was ration the rational, reasonable center. Okay, we had the big war between capitalism and communism. Capitalism won, but we're gonna knock it off a little bit. Capitalism won, but we're gonna give a little bit at the center anyway. Uh, and then he tried to build on that piece, but you know, it was, that meant creating within it time bombs that were going to blow it up later. Like, uh, the need to, to imperially dominate the post-colonial world. Right. So, and then we've got two groups who I don't really like at all. These guys leave me cold personally, but again, the talent, the historical position, undeniable. Uh, first we've got the mascots, uh, the guys who, whether uh, whatever they were thinking, whatever they cared about, uh, really their value was in representing a new uh, political concept, order, uh, set of symbols, uh, and sure. to embody them. Uh, uh, with a, and those are Andrew Jackson, uh, mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, and Ronald right. Reagan. Uh, okay. In all these cases, they represented emergent and and powerful new forces in American politics constructions. Of politics, uh, new mass politics under Jackson, the uh, the the mobilized middle class activism of the progr- of the progressive state that uh, the muscular progressive state that Roosevelt uh, conceived of, and of course Ronald Reagan's Morning in America deregulatory consumer paradise. Uh, none of these made by them. In the case of Andrew ja- Jackson, made by Martin Van Buren more than anybody. In the case mm-hmm. of Teddy Roosevelt, the uh, militancy of the working class, uh, and also the uh, mobilization of the middle class and with Reagan, the, the, uh, the, the middle class, once again, revolt against liberalism that had started in the fifties. Uh, but in all, they were all along for the ride essentially in one degree or another. Uh, I, I would argue, uh, Teddy Roosevelt probably less than the other two. Uh, but it's hard to argue that Andrew Jackson was too committed to a program when he spent his entire first term arguing about he why <laughs> his cabinet members, wives were being mean to his friend. Two points on that that group. I very much get how how you're categorizing them, and I uh, appreciate that. I do have to say that out of those, Teddy is the one that I do have the most affinity for. Also, I agree, and he's the one who is the least mascotty. He is a very cool, like epic guy. Yeah, yeah. he's also the one who's uh, least mascotty of them. Yeah, I do. I think that you just have to recognize, maybe even beyond or, or not even relevant to his the presidency, just being a citizen of the world that could so fully embody a, the time of his lifespan, yeah. you know? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I don't even think that that goes that far into his actual presidency, but he is, he is that guy. Yep. He is that bitch. He is that bitch of, of the turn of the 20th century. But here's a second question for you. And maybe you'll get into it after this. Would you not put Trump uh, into that category a little bit? I have another category for Trump. Okay. Well, the, I just, there is shades of the mascot in in Trump, I feel, but oh no, that's the thing. All of these, it's uh, it's like the humors, you yeah, know. Yeah. They all are, they're infused with each other. These are just like the concentration. Sure. Great, you know, it's a Venn diagram mm-hmm. overlapping. Who, who, who uh, has more? Uh, yeah, who's got their stats? Max, exactly. Max who has out? more of what? But no, tr- Trump is absolutely a uh, uh, very mascotty. Uh, and then you've got uh, the n- nerds. <laughs> You've got the guys who were very proud of their science fair volcanoes and thought <laughs> and thought in some way that the, that their their nerdiness basically uh, would uh, redeem the project, basically would purify all of the contradictions that they knew existed within 
the state that they supported. Or also that, you know, if they had done all the homework and, uh, you know, if their their sheet, their math sheet had come back with 100%, that that gave them all the skills to actually run the office. Yes. And you got Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and, of course, the nerd of nerds, Woodrow Wilson. Sure. Yes. Real dork-ass nerds. But guys who, uh, in one reason or another, are fascinating uh, characters, although they all give me the creeps. Absolutely. Yeah, there is something... For those categories of nerds, there is something very um, malevolent about their cold, dispassionate approach to um, to the job itself. Uh, though I do think, you know, it's it's hard to say who achieved more, Jefferson and just his massive expansion of the state, or Wilson for solidifying really what would be modernity yeah. into the 21st century yeah. of America, you know? Yeah, no, they're, they both are there to... Uh create a model for populist politics basically mm-hmm. uh, within um, within a, a ideological structure that that, uh, that that could then uh, actually could actually exert power through the political system so the, now we're getting into the, the, the lower realms these are the ones the guys I don't like them too much first you've got the cosmic chumps <laughs> See, this is a category that I I feel like I have listed out in my own separate list of guys that I have sympathy for. See, I understand why, but in my mind, I just can't not blame their personal failings as human beings for their decisions. Like they were brought yes. down by by their own faults, you know. And those are yes. Andrew Johnson, mm-hmm. Harry Truman, and Jimmy Carter. I have I in one of my little lists I have Carter Truman Johnson as one uh yeah. chunk. No, those are some chump ass chumps. See, I thought that you might be referring to a different category which includes like Ford, but that's maybe another uh, uh list that I want to talk about. Yes, I see what your definition of cosmic chump is. I mean, they're all in two cases guys who uh rose up into political power with barely any effort on their own, like pulled up through the ranks uh by other forces just to basically fill a quota. Uh, and then when in power, operated off of their own uh, smugly self-confident belief in their abilities and just fucked the dog on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, in all their cases, helped contribute to the deep deforming of, uh, of American political institutions. Now, of course, I'd say Carter is the least uh, personally responsible for that. But with uh, Truman and especially Johnson, you've got a guy who literally stuck his dick in the spinning fan. On purpose, <laughs> and then just got dick chunks everywhere and broke the fan. <laughs> well, that's a very colorful yeah. way of putting it. However, Carter's uh, sense of sanctimoniousness leaves me with the um, a, a, a bad taste as well. Even if he isn't as uh, outwardly as much of a fuck up as the other two, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, Carter's also a very recognizable modern type. You know, like yes. the well-intentioned, but but sort of. Uh, Unselfconsciously narcissistic liberal, who 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 believes yeah. uh, in virtue and and their own virtue and and have convi- con- uh, and have confused that virtue with uh, with God. Yes. So now we got the last category here. These are the guys who fascinating figures, but I mostly have negative feelings towards viscerally. Okay. And these are the demiurgical archons. <laughs> these are, right. uh, and they're all modern presidents. These are the presidents who recognized the uh, essential uh, powerlessness of the office as time moved on and uh, dealt with that, not by raging against it or ignoring it, but by willing themselves into being a, like a instrument, a conscious instrument of the system, mm-hmm. like like merge with the machine of their own volition, and these are sure Martin Van Buren, the little magician, old Kinderhook himself, uh, but at a low level because we're dealing with you know much more degree of uh, of freedom there to to do political activity. So as uh, therefore a machine that can do mm-hmm. much less evil than the ones we have now. <laughs> what we have are uh, George H W Bush, Bill Clinton, and mm-hmm. Barfsack. Crumbo himself, mm-hmm. Barack Obama. <laughs> and these are these are people who said, yes. I have looked into the eye of Sauron and uh it, it sounds great. Uh let's let's do it. 
And I think what's notable about that list is that those are the three manifestations of what I guess we would yeah. call uh, old school liberalism into the 21st century. Uh, you know, obviously, H.W. was a Republican, but he was the last vestige of the the mid-century yeah. liberalist Republican uh, um, way as it was being subsumed into uh, modern, you know, just glass-chewing conservatism. Right. And he was willing to go along for the ride on everything uh, at every level uh, in order to preserve his position, which is what that's the only way that you can consciously seek power now. Uh, so what we have had since uh, the 70s has been an alteration between these uh, figures of like self-willed evil and these uh, mm -hmm. collection of hollowed out dummies uh, who really only differ in <laughs> their degree of like um, personal narcissism, you know, like uh, like Reagan yes. was a mascot in a way Trump isn't because he really was happy to find the mark, step on it and read the lines and convince himself that was good. Donald Trump right. had an independent agenda as president. But it was just his own <laughs> personal brand. <laughs> and that is different than a mascot. You don't want your mascot doing that. That's a bad mascot. Uh, but he yes. is achieving power the only other way you can in this context. Uh, if you're not like willfully an instrument of capital in some way, uh, is to be some kind of damaged narcissist uh, who has uh, been hollowed out of anything else by one process or another. Uh, like Joe Biden. Uh, and like George W. Bush, mm -hmm. where they can tell themselves they're doing good, but it's because their brains in many fundamental ways are not uh, really picking up all the frequencies. <laughs> and in, in Donald's cases, any frequency that might be picked up is just drowned out by his own voice. But the internal scream of Donald Trump. They're just out there like like Joe mm -hmm. Biden uh, is the Democratic Party, like petrified into a skeleton. But uh, just as a being, just as an instrument of ambition, the personal ambition of Joe Biden, which has always right. been uh, since he was a child, what he saw the Democratic Party as as a way, way for Joe Biden to be president. Uh, he was actually always very uh, <laughs> forward about that, really, uh, with the people around him, that he was he, he saw politics as a way uh, to get paid and get renowned and get power and get uh social advancement uh with the abilities he had which were basically a really good set of teeth <laughs> all right i think that that is about as good of a ranking system as one could come up with for at least a categorizing system i do want to shout out one genre that i alluded to earlier that i had a kind of fondness to that i i thought you were going to say in your cosmic chumps but this is um, your Gerald Fords, ah. your Garfields, your Hoovers, and your Quincy Adamses. Let's call these the Schlemiels. Yes, they are the Schlemiels. Because like there's there's it's the, there's not as much cosmicness around this chumpery. Yeah, it's just sort of like oh, just a personalized thing of like oh boy, look at him. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, especially like Ford and Garfield. I ended up having a lot of sympathy for you know Ford just being consummately president football all the way down. And getting in there under a bizarre set of circumstances and having, like, basically not knowing what other levers to pull other than just calling a nationwide huddle <laughs> and saying, it's the top of the fourth quarter and we're down, but I, you know, we can't give up. I need everybody to put their hands in, give it 110%, uh, you know, we'll get through this together, you know? We're going to whip inflation now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so I have sympathy for Ford. Garfield, of course, just getting picked off the convention floor. Yeah, uh, for being a After pretty the good, good guy. Speech. Yeah, gave a speech so good that he got made president and then immediately killed by a, a crazy just person. Automatically owned, and then the way he died. Yeah. Oh god. Just yeah. Getting killed by his own doctor, who was his old army buddy, because they stopped feeding him from his mouth and started uh, pumping bouillabaisse and yeah. whiskey up his ass. Yeah. Um. Very very sorry to Garfield, and then Hoover. I mean, I kind of put in there more because he's a really interesting guy. And of course he is, you know, one of these business Republicans of the twenties, 
but I, I think that there's a little more there's a little more frisian to him, and uh, you know, at, at certain times, you know, dictating the food supplies during the war and insisting on ba- uh, you know bailing out the the Bolsheviks as they were starving during the uh, the Russian Civil War. You know, he's got something to him. He he's got that sense of genius of management, and then just get gets owned by circumstances. Yep. You know, and unable himself to imagine his way out of the the cul-de-sac. Yeah, because he's he is one of our longest lived presidents. He lived into his nineties. Yeah, into the, and, into the sixties. Yeah, yeah, and he spent the, his whole life writing pissed off letters to the editor about how everybody was doing too much socialism. Yeah, uh, because he believed in uh, charity, and why, why wouldn't he? He'd been a very effective uh, coordinator of it his whole career. Uh, no, Hoover's also very interesting, and the other the other uh, Quaker president, I believe, yeah. him and Nixon. Uh, I also want to shout out somebody who I don't think often gets on the bottom five list that I think should or, or towards the bottom. Uh, Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, ah. uh, just for, you know, being the guy to, uh, you know, first call in the army against the labor movement, you know, yep. and, and really like not that it would have gone any other way, but being the guy to uh, sign the order to put, you know, the arm, the, the, the weapon of the state, uh, you know, in the hands of capital, you know, literally taking troops away from protecting black freedmen in the South and their political rights and sending them to cities to shoot uh, workers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Underrated uh, scumbag. All right. Let's move on to a quick lightning round about uh, who are your guys. Uh, And then we're going to move on to final thoughts and wrap up this show once and for all. Who would you want to have a meal or a beer with? Who's the, who's the one guy you would want to sit down one-on-one for an hour? I mean, it's, it's very cliche and embarrassing, but it's Lincoln. Yeah. The guy was a fucking rock on tour. Although I have said that uh, uh, if I, my preferred move would be to go back in time to the, the night him and Van Buren sat down, chopped it up over a cracker barrel uh, when Van Buren was visiting the West. That, sound, that would have been pretty cool. I think I got to get on Nixon for this question just because. Oh, baby. Yes. Very good. Very good pick. Just to listen. And also because I know that he would. Uh, I, we know we know from the tapes that he can tie one on if, if, if you get, uh, Absolutely. get him in the right mood. Yeah. Uh, and he will give you all the opinions he has on everything. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and that's what I would want The nature of the different races, <laughs> uh, ethnicities. Um, who is your favorite that you don't think is a good president? Like, who, who's your favorite nobody of the presidents? Like, you know, somebody who didn't really do much, just kind of yeah, yeah. stood around? Well, the, the, your favorite historical nobody of the presidents. Ah, uh, okay. That's interesting. I would say uh, uh, Taft. Taft? I like Taft. I mean, obviously, you can always say, oh, he busted more trust than Roosevelt. But I find Taft, once again, very endearing as a character. This big fat guy who didn't really like politics, he just wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, uh, gets kind of bullied into being president by his aggro asshole friend, Teddy Roosevelt. And then when immediately uh, turned on by him and when Roosevelt's ego can't handle not being president anymore, he turns on him. And he was only said yes because his wife wanted to be first lady. And then she has a stroke and is debilitated almost immediately. So she can't even enjoy it. Uh, and then this fucking guy runs against him and he finishes third. The only uh, sitting president to ever finish third. Yeah. But it, and then the cute, the nice little redeeming uh, story about him getting the gavel finally to end his life as Supreme Court Chief Justice. It's 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 sweet. And it get, getting caught in the bathtub. Yeah. Throwing out the first uh, uh, first pitch ever and doing the the seventh inning stretch because he was too fat to sit in the seats. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, that might just answer my next question. Who do you see yourself the most in? Okay, hold on a minute. You said you would say who is a wise guy over here. <laughs> uh, I, f- I find this one really hard because they're all either uh, uh, you know psychopaths or losers. Well, that's the thing is, and, and they're. A lot, and a lot of them are operating from just alien principles and points of view that I just can't imagine yeah. having. I mean, the level of ambition that uh, that That's a lot of the, the top-tier really guys one. there is the, something that I find incredibly foreign. And, that and drive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one, of Lincoln's, uh, one of Lincoln's law associates uh, said that his ambition was a little engine that knew no rest. Yes. So he's just sitting there vibrating, trying to figure out what to do to get power. Uh, I, yeah, I could not, I cannot relate to that. So I basically have to 
choose one of the accidental presidents who kind of yeah, got, I think that who kind of floated up on the on the jet stream because that's the only head I could imagine getting into because the other ones would just be this cacophony uh, of of manic need to uh, achieve power. Um, maybe like uh, Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> sure. Yes. Like we were talking about just on the ticket as a, as a sop to the uh, stalwarts, then you thrust into the office, carries out civil service reform anyway. Yeah. Uh, and mostly just does uh, things for advancing facial hair <laughs> aesthetics. Yeah. Also, I could imagine myself, you know, at, in, in that time, uh, if I had any kind of ambition, uh, running the New York City Custom House seemed like a good gig. Oh, my God. That's the best gig you can imagine in, yeah. in politics. The, 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 the cash coming in. Sampling all the little snacks and stuff that, as they're going through, uh, you know, collect- making friends with all the merchants, going to the bars after hours and, and dicing it up, you know. C- Collector of customs in New York. That job is the one thing that the collector of customs of New York was the crown jewel of uh, Martin Van Buren's Patriots Network that took over, dominated New York politics and then national politics through the Democratic Party. That's how powerful a mm-hmm. patronage office that was. And yeah, uh, Chuck had it. Old Chester had it. All right. So let's get into the very, very end here. Takeaways, final thoughts. I have. Um, I have four points here that I, I would like to discuss, and I think the first one is perhaps the most trivial, but in its ways most important. Uh, I don't know if you have anything specifically pre- prepared, so maybe I'll just go first here. Yeah, no, you go for it. All right, my main number one final thought. If you get into a situation where you are offered the vice presidency, you always take the vice presidency. Uh, 100, 100%. Yes, 100%. Oh always, my God. always. Henry Clay, honestly, underrated American counterfactual we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Henry Clay turning down the VP out of peak. Yes. To a guy who was gonna, would have been the oldest president ever at a time when uh, life expectancy rates were much lower. Unbelievable. Now, none of them are ever going to die. It, it's now true. Now they forever. But just from the long-term historical uh, perspective, you have given all of them basically a one in five shot of moving up. Yep. Given the his- history of U.S. presidents. Benjamin Butler said no, uh, in part because he, uh, the, the quorum of the time and prevented presidents from working for ex-presidents from working for a living mm-hmm. because, you know, they, they were these, you know, uh, quasi-monarchial figures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be unseemly and, for them to have a job. And their, uh, their pension was pretty small comparatively to the job they'd had and to the social position they held. Uh, in fact, Millard Fillmore sort of made that his post-presidential issue that he cared the most <laughs> about was that there wasn't a big enough pension for ex-presidents. <laughs> Not a very uh, sympathetic issue, but, you know, I, I, get, I get it. Yeah. Uh, uh, but Butler said, uh, I'm not going to live on that pension. Uh, I have to give up my law practice. Fuck you. <laughs> but it's like, dude, it's, it's, there's shit p- puddles everywhere. Just throw, roll the goddamn dice. Roll the dice. Take the position. Yeah. My second point. Um, and this is kind of very specific, but it, this is something that uh, our our conversation with Matt Carp got me thinking about. Uh, kind of the overlooked importance of Texas annexation in the Mexican-American War. Oh, yeah. I feel like that whole era is one of the yada yada eras when you right. uh, learn yeah. about history. And that really yeah. is like that. That is the uh, the cold open of, you know, the Civil War. Right. And the, um, you know, the rest of American history that folds out unfolds after it. And, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff that goes on there. A lot of really interesting DC, like presidential politics, uh, surrounding it. And, you know, I think it's, it's worth reevaluating as one of the, I don't know, like top five key eras of American history. Absolutely. It was a, yeah, it was a, it was like a decade of cloak and dagger intrigue around the Mexican or the, from the Texas, uh, revolution, Mm-hmm. Uh, to annexation and then the Mexican War, uh, as presidents from Jackson on, sort of wrestled with uh, how do we square on the one hand the the significant regional interest in uh, expansion and also you know increased uh, uh, cotton production uh, for the southern economy with the reality of uh, with the knowledge that all of them held of how destabilizing that the to the political uh consensus it would be because when kids learn u.s history you you learn there was slavery and there was free states and eventually over time people got mad about it and the reason they did is because of 
Texas and Mexico by, by disrupting the geographic balance of the states. Uh, yeah. And so you see this push and pull. The Demo- even the Democrats kind of struggling internally about when to finally uh, go go uh, full hog on it. And then Polk kind of takes it in himself, a guy we haven't really talked about and a guy who is pretty interesting. It's just he his personality to me is very uh, antiseptic and uninteresting. So uh, he's hard to get your head around. Yeah. And one of my formulations of um, my top five presidents list, I, I put Polk at five. Just in terms of, uh, you know, importance and treasury, the one term wonder. He got everything done and quit. I yep. uh, not, not any uh, not many people have done that. I, th- I think and then that, immediately died of dysentery from yeah, the shit pool immediately. Yes. Uh, maybe again, of course, not one of the like best in terms of like most virtues or, or uh, best men. But of course, I think, you know, important and pivotal. And, you know, honestly, among the best at the job, getting it all. Everything Absolutely. Done also uh, mullet. Yeah, mullet. Only presidential mullet. The incredible yeah. Polk. All right. Third big takeaway, and these are much bigger topics that we've talked a lot about, so we don't need to go into too much, but I just kind of get want to get your quick take on this. Um, that one possible way to look at American history that I, I think is elucidating is that it is basically the history of the two political parties uh, dissolving like acid uh, the basic constitutional functions of the government. Yeah. Uh, basically, the power put into the parties as political apparatuses, taking away uh, freedom, possibility, or, or any maneuverability within the political function of the state itself. Right. And then eventually, and this is the important part uh, to understand the current moment, uh, having their uh, like internal structures still dominate our political process. Like, right. You cannot win office seriously without being a Republican or Democrat. They have a duopolistic domination of the political system, but they are no longer structures of uh, institutional integrity or ideological transmission. Mm-hmm. They are they are merely uh, technological pass-throughs, essentially, for private money. They no longer form a independent structural element of uh, the political process. They are now just a a a, a sluice tube for private private money and public attention uh and that means that any attempt to uh do politics do electoral popular politics uh in a way that challenges the underlying ideological assumptions that both parties share uh is to go to war with them the only war that they can fight anymore against the their specific job prospects within the system because they are now just these collections of entrepreneurs uh yeah and that's basically what I was good at getting at there. Uh, and I think that that is an interesting way to look at American history that kind of shows you, uh, you know, who the, who the real enemies in the systems are, the parties themselves. Yeah. Um, and finally, I mean, at least they used to be, you used to work for a party. You actually were like a company man or woman, mm-hmm. like you, you w- were an employee. Now it's all independent contractors, but they, those positions they hold are, are enshrined in our system. Yes. And finally, just specific to the presidents, um, you know, like the study of any good criminal, you really have to look at both motive and opportunity. Yes. Uh, which, Matt, I think is what you like to call contingency. Good old contingency. Yeah. The interplay of, of chance and uh, will, basically. Yeah. Uh, and all of these presidents demonstrate some combination of uh, will and and uh, then the the limiting factor of the the structures that they find themselves in. And that's why I think that ranking presidents in the way that you rank, uh, like say pro baseball players mm-hmm. gives the wrong impression because you're imagining a president with the same dominance of the field of uh, politics that a baseball player does over the batter's box or the pitcher's mound, the same ability to, you know, pick a throw, pick, choose a pitch, launch it or hit it or run or whatever. When really, it's more like ranking umpires. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're there. They have a role in the system. But the their options are much more constrained than a player's are. And they can make good and bad decisions. But again, very much constrained by the structure of the, of the game and unable to assert the same, uh, anywhere near the same uh, a consequence to the outcome with their individual decisions as the players. Yes. Um, so those are kind of my like 
final thoughts as I'm thinking back about this whole series. Anything from you? So this, this, I think what I take from this whole pro, uh, project is that there is a fundamental contradiction in trying to talk about presidential history because it, it gives you a distorted view of processes by personalizing them. Uh, but it's by personalizing them in these discrete identities, these discrete people that are, as you said, a manageable number and about whose decisions and personalities and stuff we can know a relatively uh, decent amount about, uh, that we could actually imagine ourselves subjectively experiencing that past, Mm -hmm. which is a crucial part of knowledge that uh, can't be taken from just a dry schematic of, of history. Yes. It's a, it, it is a more engaging way to, to see these things than uh, just a list of, of dates and events and yeah. things like that. And I guess I would just add to that that, you know, in the end, and I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out or any ass covering or anything, but, you know, I think that the story that we've laid out here is one that I don't think either of us would say is by any means, you know, definitive. Yeah. With any history as vast as even the history of just our country, you know, there are a million ways to approach the material uh, and i think if done if if done in good faith with and engaging with other good faith analysis you can help illuminate new ways to understand history through different approaches so i guess in the very end what what i hope that we've given from the show is a good framework yes to uh to a mechanism in your mind to approach history and approach the thought of how we got to where we are Uh, in American history and where we might go from here. And, you know, uh, one way to approach the mechanisms of history that we hope is compelling and has a kind of materialist perspective that you just don't get that much in, especially pop consumable podcast products like this. And and I I hope that we have done that. And if we have, I consider that a success. Amen. All right, Matt. Well, um, hell of presidents will not return, but hopefully uh, we will return you and I. Yeah, some version of this thing sometime in the future. We got a, we got an idea. We we'll got just an idea. say that we're working yes. on it. We're working on it. Uh, we're right. we're in the lab drawing up more history. Yep. Um. So, I want to thank everyone who contributed to this series. Most of all, Nick Quas, who did rough edits of every one of these episodes. The series would absolutely not be possible without him. Uh, I want to thank Nick Diamonds for our theme song. His band Islands is on tour now. They rock. Please do go see them if you have the chance. Uh, Branson Reese, of course, did our episode art. His cartoon series Swan Boy is now on Hulu. It's great and weird and hilarious. Check it out if you have Hulu or FX. All the musicians who contributed transition songs, an amazing addition to the series. I'm deeply grateful to all of you. And finally, I want to thank you, Matt, for your vast knowledge of history and inimitable ability to relate it in a fun and approachable way. Thank you so much for doing this series with me. And of course, you, the listeners, thank you all for tuning in and following the series with us. I love you. This has been Hell of Presidents. Presidents.